Well, good morning. We're a little bit late this morning, but we'll give ourselves a start. Thanks for joining once again. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will pick up at Deuteronomy 8. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you have preserved for us through millennia. We thank you for those who have been faithful in copying it and transmitting it from one generation to another. But most of all, we are grateful that we can come here and study it openly and freely, converse about it together as a body of believers who are all seeking together to grow into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we pray that as we gather here this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would be satisfied by knowing you and your ways with us better this morning. Give us knowledge, and most of all, give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Pastor's Randy introduction to the service this morning served as a wonderful introduction to this class. Um, I have provided notes this week. I don't do that every week, and I'm sure you have noticed that I'm very inconsistent in the way I present notes. Um, I, I uh, aim for a variety for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons I did this morning, what I did with the notes in giving you an extended introduction, uh, matches very well with the way Pastor Andy opened the message, which is one of the things I try to do as I teach, is not merely teach the content, but also uh, try and provide direction in how uh, we can read the Bible better on our own as we read it. And what I've done in the introduction is given a review in the form of the outline of Deuteronomy from Deuteronomy 5 through Deuteronomy 8, which we are looking at this morning. And so by way of introduction and review, I'll simply go through the brief outline that I've provided there because what happens uh, this morning, for example, we're looking at Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 to 5. It's really hard to see the large argument that Moses is making when you look at a passage five verses at a time. When his speech goes well beyond that, this sermon that Moses is delivering runs from Deuteronomy chapter 5 through Deuteronomy 22 or so. Um, that is a long speech. It is a long sermon. And to only take snippets of it uh, risks pulling them out of context. And so what I've tried to do here is provide that context. So Moses is Israel's teacher, and he is giving divinely authoritative explanation of what God expects from his redeemed people. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Moses recited from his memory, most likely, the ten words, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And he shows... Uh, begins to show Israel that it is not merely an outworking of expressions of the commandments, but the inward disposition that Israel is to have, uh, that the commandments are ultimately aiming at. He begins that explanation in chapter 6, after having given the ten words in chapter 5. Moses shows that Israel will express her devotion and love for God through willful and cheerful obedience to God all of God's other commands, and uh, primarily that will be done in four ways that Moses explains in chapters 6 and 7. First, it will be through a constant vigilance against neglecting or forgetting God, chapter 6, uh, verses 10 to 15. She will uh, 
express her love through the willful and cheerful keeping of God's commandments close at heart and will receive blessing for it. Israel is to inculcate the gospel of salvation to the next generation and display for them the response of faith and explain why they do what they do in chapter 6, verses 20 to 25. And then in chapter 7, the first half of it, she will display her love and singular devotion to God through destroying all false forms of worship and, we might add, all false worshipers. Uh, They are to go as well. And if Israel lives that way, she will continue to be the recipient of unmerited favor going forward into the future, and God will shower her with blessings, which is the last half of chapter 7, which I was not here for. I am assuming we made it all the way to chapter 8, verse 1, which is where we will pick up this morning. Moses continues the same themes that we have already seen in chapters 6 and 7, but he attacks them now from a slightly different angle. Israel's past experiences are to be an education for faith, and that education is to inform the way that she will live going forward. We might even say the theme of chapter 8 is what we know determines our devotion. We can only be as devoted to God as well as we know. But what knowledge means, we'll receive some qualification here as we go forward. So that's kind of our introduction and our review where we are this morning in chapter 8. Moses is going to review some of Israel's past experience, draw a lesson from it, and say, going forward, keep this lesson in mind. So we'll start in chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. So Moses begins with a commandment. Everything I command you today, you shall be careful to do. They are to do everything Moses has instructed, but doing in and of itself is not an end. Doing is a means to an end. Moses gives four, maybe five, goals of what their doing will result in, in verse 1. That you may live, that you may multiply, that you may go in, and you may possess the land. That's the fourfold goal of all of the doing. All of those blessings come as a result of Israel's obedience. Now what's fascinating is that that land, which is one of the goals of their obedience, receiving, going in and possessing it, that's one of the goals of the land, but it was already promised to the patriarchs. The Israelites, though that land is promised, only receive that land if they fulfill the condition of doing the commandments. So, um, one more note we'll make before we draw that out just a little bit. This instruction is cross-generational. Moses isn't only speaking to this generation, that they may go in and possess the land. It, it, It spans all the generations. Because even after Israel possesses the land, they are still not to consider themselves home. Even in Canaan, when the land is theirs, they haven't arrived somehow. 
So Psalm 119, and we'll spend a little bit of time in Psalm 119. So if, we, if you flip there, maybe you'd want to keep a finger in it. In Psalm 119, verse 19, the psalmist who is worshiping God in God's land that has been now achieved, the psalmist still says, Psalm 119, verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. So even as he's meditating on the law, and he looks at a passage like Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, that you may go in and you may possess it, he says, I have the land as part of my possession. I'm here in the land, but I'm still not home. There's something more to be achieved yet, which is also why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 13 can say, these all died in faith, not having received what was promised. And he includes many of those, including David and some of his posterity, as part of that saying, they all died in faith, not having received the promise. How can you say that to someone who's living inside the promised land? Well, it's because he looks at what Moses tells this generation and he reads it as equally applicable to him as he did to the generation Moses is speaking to. And so we might say it this way. Just because salvation is won does not mean the reward is guaranteed. Salvation may have been won for the Israelites but the reward of their salvation is still yet to come. God has really done something for us in Christ. Just as God had really done something for Israel in rescuing them from Egypt, he really, truly did something on their behalf. But we will not inherit the blessing and eternal life without active faithfulness. Just as Israel would not achieve their reward without active faith and obedience. Now, our salvation from sin is not identical with our reward of eternity. One gives access to the other, just as Israel's exodus from Egypt gave access and possibility to possessing the land of promise. But just because they had one does not mean they had the other. Salvation from sin is not the same as having the reward in hand. Work must yet be done. Now, I draw this out because in Second Peter, there is a whole paragraph that, again, uh, Pastor Andy, I think, was well to spend several weeks on and could have spent several more if he wanted to. Uh, but there is an argument that Peter is developing in Second Peter chapter 1, And that argument is exactly what we find going on here in Deuteronomy. So 2 Peter chapter 1, if I can get there, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So because you've been saved, in other words, verse 5, for this very reason, because you've been saved, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if, there's that condition, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly rewarded, uh, provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is on the exact same page as Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Salvation is not the same thing as the reward. Salvation provides access and possibility and provision for the reward. But there is work to be done in the meantime. Moses lays all of that in a single verse. So life, blessing, and reward are achieved, though not earned, through their obedience. We'll pause there. Questions or comments over the first verse. Are you saying that there is no assurance of salvation? Good question. Am I saying there is no assurance of salvation? No, I am not saying there is no assurance. Uh, <laughs> well, does Peter sound like he's saying there's no assurance? Right? So when, when he says, uh, when he places a condition on our reward, what he's saying is you must meet the condition. But the argument he's also making in First Peter is God's provided everything for you to achieve that. He's given those things to you already. Avail yourself of what he's provided. And so assurance is a matter of perspective, you might say. Right? So Jesus can say, none are going to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But on the other hand, he can say, well, if you don't do as I've commanded you, you're not going to make it. And so assurance is one perspective of speaking of our salvation. But even Peter will say, confirm your calling and election. Uh, be active in your obedience. Because if you're not active, there's no reason for assurance. If you're active, there's great reason for assurance. Because you are working in those things which the Lord has provided for you. Anything else? Okay. Let's move on to verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 8. The divine purpose of affliction. So just as Israel is to be active, uh, looking forward to what might yet be achieved, verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the beginning of verse 2, and you shall remember, it's a little ambiguous in the text, whether you shall remember is another commandment alongside verse 1, you shall be careful to do, 
uh, which is you shall be careful to do and you shall remember, or if it is another uh, result of doing the commandments so that it might read this way, you shall be careful to do everything that I command you that you might live long, that you might multiply, that you might possess, uh, enter, that you might possess, and that you might remember. If it is the first, the, that way, if it is another uh, result of doing the commandments, uh, we, we could say it this way. If keeping the commandments leads to remembrance of God's work through the believer's life, how does that happen? Because I think it does happen that way. Um, also, it's not, uh, that, that is also part of how it works. I'll just point out this, uh, two things. First, some commandments were commandments to keep festivals. And those festivals that were worked into Israel's liturgical calendar were all festivals of remembrance of one sort or another. For example, the Passover was a remembrance of God's protection of Israel leading up to the Exodus. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed the next seven days after Passover, was the remembrance of their Exodus from Egypt, that God uh, delivered them from the house of slavery. The Feast of Weeks was a remembrance of God's covenant at Sinai. In fact, uh, Israel, uh, Jewish tradition has that all covenants were made during this uh, week, this Feast of Weeks. Uh, so they tie not only uh, the Sinaitic covenant to this celebration, but all of the covenants that God has made with his people, they tie to this uh, celebration. The Feast of Booths is also a celebration of remembrance. Let's turn to Leviticus 23, where this one is made quite explicit uh, for what its purpose in remembrance is. All of these feasts also coincided with certain points in the agrarian year. Uh, so they, they centered around uh, the timing coincidentally works around the farming calendar as well, the farming year. Uh, but that's not really their primary point. Remembrance isn't always their primary point. Uh, but in the Feast of Booze, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, God says, I want you to hold this festival. I want you to live in booths for seven days so you can remember one thing. I afflicted you. I made you dwell in discomfort, in inconvenience, and I did that while I rescued you, but I want you to remember that you had a hard path coming out of Egypt, and that you dwelt in those booths, not just as you left Egypt, but you dwelt in them for 40 years. The reason that's important is because of what we'll see in just a little bit in Deuteronomy 8, um, but we'll hold that in the back of our minds for just a second. The other thing I'll say is doing the commandments leads to our remembrance of God's ways with the believer. Uh, and we saw that expressed in Deuteronomy 6. When your son comes to ask you in times to come, why do you live this way? Well, you will tell them, God delivered us from Egypt. Uh, so doing the commandments ought to provoke questions in children, whereby we present to them not only the the strict answer to their question, but we provide them with the gospel. This is what has, God has done for us. And so doing the commandments leads to a way of life that provokes meditation on God's word as well. But 
More likely, verse 2 is a commandment, as I think all of our translations have it. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God blessed you. And what they are to remember is not the route that God led them, but particularly that God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. I think all of our translations have the word humble. I, I would prefer a different translation, and that would be the translation of afflicted. In Hebrew, to afflict and to humble are the same things, but in English, they have different connotations. We might say that the word means to humble through affliction. The word on its own can mean to afflict. In fact, the way God humbles is through providing affliction in the life of the believer. And so I think affliction works better in this passage than humble does. And so going forward, I'm going to uh, forsake all of our translations, and I'm going to use the word afflict. And you'll see why I do that in just a little bit. Keep in mind, the, the Hebrew word that's being used here is primarily the word afflict, but it can also mean uh, to extend out to, uh, to humble as a, a result. There are three theological issues I want to address in these verses. First, I already mentioned it. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might afflict you. Israel is not supposed to get hung up on remembering the path of their footsteps, right? What we would call the fascinating archaeological study of Israel's path through the wilderness. Now, those things can provide benefit because as we study the way they took, we can gain a greater appreciation for the Lord's affliction of them. They can uh, provide evidence against naysayers and help doubters, perhaps. But that's not what the person who studies the Bible is supposed to be after. What we who are students of the Bible are to pay attention to and the lessons we are to draw from Israel's time in the wilderness is the fact that God afflicted them. That's what Israel is to remember. And that's what all of those who come after these Israelites are to remember as well. But not only that God afflicted them, but that he had a purpose in afflicting them. The second thing I want to draw out is God does not shy away from claiming responsibility for affliction. In fact, in these two verses, he mentions it two times. Once in verse 2, he led you that he might afflict you. And then in verse 3, it simply states it as a fact. And he afflicted you. Moses draws attention to the fact that Israel's troubles and trials were given by God. He doesn't distance God from those problems that we have. Now, most of us, I think wisely, tend to not want to claim to be the reason someone suffered. Right? You're suffering? That was because of me. But God does that. He says, you're suffering? That was because of me. God also claims responsibility for the specifics. Verse 3 he humbled you, and the ESV has, he let you hunger. Does the NIV, if anyone's reading the NIV, does that have a different translation? King James says, suffered them to hunger. Suffered them to hunger. 
better, causing you to hunger is the NIV. That is what it ought to be. Uh, to, it wasn't a permissive hungering as if, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, could have fed you, I meant to fed you, I just really didn't, right? Um, if you could have found something on your own, that would have been fine, but you didn't, and I just kind of let it pass. That's not what it's saying. Uh, we might even translate it this way. I affli- uh, and he afflicted you, and he famished you. The Lord intentionally withheld food from the Israelites. He purposefully let them go hungry, which is why causing to hunger is a great reflection of what the Hebrew is actually uh, communicating there. So God not only says two times in these two passages, I afflicted you. He says specifically, I afflicted you. I made you to hunger. I famished you. Now our folly is sometimes attempting to distance God from people's suffering. God never does that. Moreover, we do it because we think that if God causes someone to suffer, he might come across as unrighteous, as if he doesn't have the right to do so. But the psalmist, and this is why I'm sticking with the word afflict, back in Psalm 119, told you we'd go back, four more verses we're going to look at in Psalm 119 in connection to this. In Psalm 119, the psalmist particularly hits this where it hurts a little bit. Psalm 119, verse 75. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's the exact same word as in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. That your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Those are the two qualities of God that we most doubt when we try to distance God from our suffering. That he's either unfaithful, or that he is unrighteous. And he's neither of those. The psalmist hits both of those in the same passage in relation to his suffering. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that God desires we escape our tribulation. It is filled with prayers that we might not be overcome by our tribulation, but it never says anywhere that God desires we not enter and receive tribulation. One more thing to remember on this front, though. God is a personal God who is acquainted with our suffering, and he has a vested interest in our well-being. We could look at 1 Peter 1, 3-7, a well-worn passage by those who have suffered, um, right? He's preserving for us an inheritance that is undefiled, uh, unfading, kept in heaven for you, though for now we must, uh, if necessary, endure some trials for a little while so that the tested genuineness of our faith may found to result in praise and glory and honor at the coming of Jesus Christ. And that praise and glory and honor is our praise and glory and honor at Christ's coming, not merely his own. And so the suffering we endure now is meant to try and refine us. The imagery is, uh, again, often in the Psalms, but the idea is here too, like throwing something into the fire to burn off all of the dross so that the purity remains. We'll hit that again in just a little bit. Uh, But God afflicts us as one who knows us and send afflictions that are particularly pointed for who we are and the circumstances we find ourselves in. 
But let's keep a finger in Psalm 119. We have three more passages to look at. Back in Deuteronomy 8, there is something Israel is to know as a result of her suffering. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He afflicted you and he famished you and fed you with manna, so he doesn't always leave us only in our suffering, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Affliction has a purpose. The Lord has a purpose in affliction. If we were to go back to Psalm 119, there are a few other purposes that are given, and I want to draw them out just briefly. We're not going to spend much time on them. Psalm 119, verse 67, a purpose of correction. Fits well with our theme. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So there is a a corrective element to it. Verse 71, there is an educational element to it. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Something Israel uh, is supposed to gain as well through her affliction. And uh, verse 107 of Psalm 119, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. This is simply a prayer of desperation. Sometimes the purpose in affliction is to cause us to recognize our desperation and our dependence on God, something Israel is to learn here as well. But in verse 3, back to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to leave Psalm 19 now. Back to Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Verse 2, actually. We'll, we'll go up to verse 2. We'll start here. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. The first purpose, that he might afflict you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here's the first purpose in affliction, that God may gain knowledge, that he might afflict you, that he might know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Does that mean that God lacked knowledge? No, it didn't. Uh, Three things we can say in reference to that. Before we we give any resolutions, um, first, we cannot explain away the text nor the text as it's written. Never try to do that. Never try to say, well, it really doesn't mean that because the text is written the way it's written for a very good reason. Let what it says stand and try and find a resolution without explaining the passage away. Three, three things we can say. Some commentators say it means, uh, for God to know something, means more like God is revealing something. There are ways Moses could have said that. I don't think that's quite what's happening here. I think it's an okay resolution to land on. But they say, since God is omniscient and knows everything, it it must mean he's revealing something. Um, Maybe, uh, but I I don't know. Uh, But uh, they would say the test does nothing for God. It actually reveals something to those uh, Israelites who learn something about themselves through the affliction. That is true. We do learn things about ourselves through affliction. 
Um, So there's a truism there. But the text specifically says, so that God may know, not so that Israel may know something about themselves, but that God may know something about Israel. That's what the text is actually saying. So, although what the commentators say is true, uh, that that God knows and he is omniscient, I don't think that's the way to explain this text. Another option, and I think a, a better one. This is a textual device used to impress upon Israel the reality of the dynamic relationship between Yahweh and Israel. That there is a genuine and a true relationship that is forming here. This is not mechanistic. It is not impersonal. There is a dynamism that is going on here. It is, it is not static. God is personal and he is relating as a person to persons. Because notice what happens here. In verse 2, the Lord's testing is so that he might know what was in your heart. But in verse 3, look what happens. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Jumping down a little bit, that he might make you to know something. So there is a balancing of the scales in the text. On the one hand, the testing is so that God may know something of Israel. And on the other hand, it's so that Israel may know something of God. That you might know that it is not by bread alone that man lives, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the affliction here is shown to have more than one purpose. It is so that God may take an advantage from the relationship and from the affliction and the suffering and so that the people of Israel might gain an advantage and gain something through the affliction that they are experiencing. So, uh, Israel is to learn something about God, and God is said to learn something about Israel. And I want to just point out that this is why God is faithful in afflicting us. Our affliction is never to disadvantage us. It's always that we might grow, that we might have some sort of benefit From the experience. God Himself benefits from that. And if that sounds odd, just think of it this way Do you think God tends to receive more glory by saying, I am the author of your trial and I am the one who sustained you through it? Or does He receive more glory when we really don't ever have the the pathway? and grow in our faith, and praise God for a greater array of reasons. God has an advantage for the suffering we experience. His glory increases. We have an advantage too. We come to know God better. And what could be a better aim than anything in the world than to know God better? That's what God is driving Israel to here through all of this. The greatest pleasure, the greatest thing we can have is to know God better. And that's one of the great things he achieves through our suffering. So sometimes we are to learn something about God, as here in Deuteronomy, and sometimes we're to learn something about ourselves, as Paul draws out in Romans 5. But uh, we'll say one more thing about this in relation to God's omniscience. This does not deny God's omniscience if we have a biblical definition of what it means to know. I don't think we best explain that away by saying it means reveal. There are words to say that. I think we need to understand what it means to know better. And I, uh, I'll, I'll define it this way. You have it on the, on the handout I gave you, um, a circle with a heart inside of it. We'll get to that in just a second. 
But what I'm arguing here is that for God to know something is not a matter of cognitive awareness, but it's more of a functional knowledge. And what I mean by that is to know means to take certain facts into consideration such that they, became, they become a basis for our future activity. Let's put it this way. God has promised the land to Abram's offspring. Will this generation receive that land? Because the question of how is Israel going to respond to their suffering is related to how will I deal with Israel going forward? Right? How Israel reacts in her suffering, will she remain faithful or not, is related to will she inherit the reward or not? Not as though God doesn't know that, but there is a relationship that is progressing here between God and Israel as well. It's that dynamism that is being expressed in the passage. And so uh, we might, we, we have a sort of comparison to that. Let's go over to Romans chapter 1 real quick. Because the question of knowledge often arises in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So this, this is merely an analogy of uh, the way God knows. The way God knows is mysterious to us. I don't know how God knows what he knows. Uh, his ways of knowing are beyond my ways of knowing. But I think we have a bit of an analogy here in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 19 to 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is the unrighteous, unbelievers. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Verse 21, for although they knew God. Do unbelievers know God? Huh. Well, we have to say yes, because we have to say yes, right? Romans 1 forces us to say yes. But, but really, do, does an unbeliever know God? Can an unbeliever say, I know Jesus Christ? No, they can't. What's the difference? We often relegate knowledge to mere cognitive awareness, which Paul is saying these people have. The unbeliever knows God exists. He might deny it with his mouth, but he knows it. He can't escape that knowledge. God's implanted it in him and shown it everywhere in creation. And so in that diagram, I have the circle, which represents cognitive awareness, cognitive knowledge. The unbeliever knows God exists. He knows it. He might put a question mark at the end of it, but he knows it. The believer, on the other hand, he knows God exists in an entirely different sort of way. He knows God exists in such a way that the knowledge of God's existence dictates everything that he does by policy. Right? That's, that's what the believer is about. I know God exists, and I take that into consideration when I think, when I breathe, when I eat, when I drink, when I sleep, when I do everything I do. The unbeliever knows that in such a way as it is the foundation for all of his work. And I think what's going on in Deuteronomy 8 is God is saying that sort of thing. I want to know what should be the foundation of my work going forward with you, O Israel. Are you going to keep my commandments or aren't you? Not as though he isn't omniscient, but in the context of the developing relationship, I think that's uh, what, what Moses is getting at in terms of the knowledge. 
It's the foundation for God's activity with Israel going forward because there are conditions that need to be met if Israel is to receive the reward. We'll pause there very briefly. Um, a lot went, uh, went by right there. Thoughts or questions about it? I'll consider myself unscathed then. Verse 3, let's move forward just a little bit. God didn't only afflict, he offered relief from affliction. Verse 3, and he afflicted you and he famished you and he fed you with manna. Now the provision of manna would mean little if Israel didn't first suffer some hunger. Uh, But together they are graciously designed to teach Israel a very important lesson. One lesson should have been learned by her experience and another lesson she ought to keep in mind as she goes forward. What is it? Verse 3. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man needs bread to live. Israel was famished and they felt it. So God provided manna. That was a revealing move. First, it shows that sustenance comes from Yahweh. There is no generic term for God here. There's no Elohim. It's only the personal name of Yahweh, the name that Israel knew God by in her relationship with him. So again, the relationship aspect is is being emphasized, but the Lord is also showing that you want to know how people live? I provide that for them, just as I created them. No one gets their sustenance from any other source. Everything comes from me. The extent of that is expressed in Psalm 104, which, let's quickly go there one more time, back to the Psalms. We don't have time for it, but it's too good to leave it. Psalm 104 Starting in verse 27. The psalmist has just surveyed creation, all of these different creatures. He's taken into account not only creatures, but what we would call inanimate creation too. uh, Trees and plants and things like that. Verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Those last two verses, the last part of verse 29 and verse 30, Genesis 1 verse 2 ought to just jump off the page, right? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, but the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. But the Spirit of God was there, and that's exactly what's going on in Psalm 104. And what the Lord is saying is, sustenance comes from me. And he teaches Israel, sustenance comes from me. You don't get what you get by your own efforts. You get it as a gift from my hand, and I want you to remember that. So it does include wider creation. Israel is not self-sufficient, but there's more to the story than that. Even the sustenance that God provides is insufficient for life. A generation who even ate of the manna, all died out because their heart was not inclined to keep God's commandments. 
Daniel Block, uh, my, probably my favorite commentator over Deuteronomy, pointed this out. He said, The imagery is of God casting Israel into the fire and letting all of the dross burn off and the good remain. The former generation was the dross. The shoes were the good that remained in verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. The generation before was the dross. The clothing and the shoes were the, was what remained of the trial. Quite pretty remarkable um, when you think of it that way. And what the Lord is saying here is if one is to live, one lives by a heart devoted to the Lord, even manna will not provide what we need to make it. We might not know now at the moment why God is testing us, though he is testing us, But what the Lord is looking for is, are we going to obey in times of affliction? Are we going to be the dross? Or are we going to be what is purified and what remains going forward? Um, This seems to be the primary way Jesus leveraged the text in Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4, um, that physical provision is not sufficient for life. Now, what's remarkable about Jesus' case is he denied himself exactly what the Lord provided his people in Israel, in in the wilderness. The Lord miraculously provided manna for Israel to eat. Jesus refused to miraculously provide anything for himself to eat. He patiently waited on God in his affliction, waited on God to provide, and remained faithful whether the Lord provided that or not. So, Um, Jesus is is drawing from this not primarily the lesson that we survive physically by the Lord's provision, but that we survive, period, by paying attention to everything that comes from the mouth of God. Concern for the body must never overwhelm or overshadow the concern for the soul. That's what Jesus is driving at, and that's what Moses is driving at. Provision for the body must never take precedence over concern for the soul. The body will die even with an abundance of provision. Even if it's miraculous provision, the body still dies, yet the soul remains, which is why I think Jesus says what he did. Uh, We'll look at two places real quick, maybe in, in John. I deleted one of them, but we'll go to... John 6, anyway. John 6. I think the other one was a a reference in John about, uh, though, if you believe in me, uh, yeah, he's talking to to Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will yet live. If we remember that passage, um, or better yet, if we remember John 6 when we're in that passage, we would do well because Jesus draws something out for us from his reflection of Israel's affliction. John 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I skipped the line there. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Again, uh, provision for the body. Do not work for food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, just one note there. I don't know about you, but the way my life typically runs, I'm more energetic for the food that perishes uh, than the food that endures to eternal life. That is quite something for Jesus to word it that way. Um, Not to deny that we have to work for our provision, but which do you work, which do you really work for is, is what he's driving at. But going on, verse 28. Then they said to him, we must, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent, whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Which is a terrifically ironic thing to say, because he just miraculously fed them. Which is why they're looking for him. But they, they still throw it at him. Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. They even know to quote scripture. But verse 32, Jesus comes back at them. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives, etern- and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The body will die with an abundance of even miraculous provision. But there is something more work to aim for. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Um, We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But even if we're eating at God's mouth, it's worthless if we do not allow ourselves to be truly nourished and animated by it. We're to know God. I mean, really know God. Uh, I'll go to 1 Corinthians 10 uh, real briefly here as we... Uh, leave this behind. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, which is not a reference to the manna and the water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So they all had an engagement with Christ. They were all nourished by him in some fashion. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So there is a participation in Christ that gets us nowhere. But, back to Deuteronomy 8. What is Israel to learn from their affliction and from God's provision that will result in their life? Verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then this little parenthetical statement, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Now here's, here's the, the last drive of the nail. 
Know then in your heart, which is know in this very particular way, not the cognitive knowledge sort of way, but in the sort of way that's going to direct the way you live. Know then in your heart as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. When you enter into trials of affliction, Israel, as you're going to, know that the Lord is disciplining you. And as we have in Hebrews 12, for example, every legitimate son receives discipline. Often painful at the time, but every legitimate son receives discipline. Do not think to yourselves, Israel, when you are being afflicted, that the Lord has forsaken you. He's teaching you something, first about himself. Not necessarily this lesson in particular, but something like it. He's teaching you about himself And, of course, you'll gain something, uh, some knowledge about yourself as you go through it as well. But what Israel is to remember is this. The affliction that the Lord gives, he gives in his fatherly care. As a father disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. That's what Israel is to draw going forward. Now, these first five verses are a foundation for what is going to come next week. When Israel is in the land, what is Israel supposed to remember in times of prosperity, it's this lesson right here, and we'll see why that is hopefully next week. Uh, thoughts or questions before we wrap it up? Yeah, um, I think we, in our society, do often um, disproportionately weight uh, those two things. Uh, we, we tend to think of them as my God instead of our God uh, much of the time. Um, but, but both of those need to be held in, in biblical proportions, I think. Well, all of those who died in the wilderness were all of those who rebelled. So that's one of the main lessons to draw from, that, that even Paul will draw out, is God was not pleased with most of them. And by most of them, I mean all but two. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the whole nation does suffer. But, but one thing to remember, too, is a modern corollary to this, is we, we often do not think in terms of the worldwide church. Um, But when any denomination within the broad church generally suffers, the church as a whole suffers too. Um, So there's a great deal of vested interest we should have in our brothers and sisters who are in other denominations as well. Thank you very much. I will see you next week, God willing.